Welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. And I don't think you have to have a company to be an entrepreneur. I, can, I think you can be a, a, an entrepreneur within a company. You're the entrepreneur of your career, um, the CEO of your life. This show features conversations between diverse technology professionals discussing women in the industry, cutting edge innovations, the future of work, deeply technical topics, and the ways that we can all work together to make the world a more inclusive place. My name is Natalia Days. I'm the Senior Director of Communications and Marketing at Women Who Code. And today we're talking to Arlen Hamilton. Arlen founded Backstage Capital in 2015 to invest in founders who are people of color, women, and or LGBTQ. Since its founding, Backstage has raised nearly $30 million and invested in 200 startups led by underestimated founders. Arlen is also the founder of HireRunner.co, a startup that connects outstanding employee talent with inclusive companies. Arlen published her book, It's About Damn Time, in 2020, detailing her journey from homelessness to venture capital trailblazer. Arlen also hosts the popular podcast, Your First Million, and in 2018 was the first non-celebrity Black woman to grace the cover of Fast Company magazine. Arlen's latest book, Your First Million, Why You Don't Have to Be Born into a Legacy of Wealth to Leave One Behind, is available to order right now. Welcome to the Women Who Code podcast, Arlen. Thank you so much for having me. We're excited. So we're going to dive right in. I, we're excited to learn about your background and just listen to your wisdom and your guidance around venture capital and tech and all of the things. So um, if we can just get started by you giving a little information about your background, you've had many diverse experiences in your career and your background differs greatly from what you do today. So can you just talk about how your your journey? Sure. So um well, I've had a lot, yeah, lots of lives, I think. I, I was raised in Dallas and um, was a good student, didn't go to college, although I was accepted into some, you know, kind of had a upbringing where I was, we didn't have a lot of money, so I was just worried about leaving, leaving town. And so I started doing data entry for a bank, and while I was, like, doing the night shift one night, <laughs> and I listened to this song by this by these musicians in Norway called Golden Boy. And I fell in love with their music. They were just kind of cute band, you know, I fell in love with their music. Pop punk is what it was called. And one thing led to another. And, at, you know, at 20 years old, I got in touch with them and ended up being their tour manager. And I had wanted to be a tour manager for a musician since I saw Janet Jackson perform live when I was 13. Right. So I was in the front row after getting a ticket from who was then her husband. It's a whole story. I talk about it. It's about damn time. I talk about it in your first million book, both of them, because it was such a transformative time for me. And I had just said since I was 13, I wanted to go on tour. And so I started working with this band, super, super indie, taught myself how to book shows. And then I became their tour manager and we went on the road and that kind of gave me the bug of like, okay, I want to do this for a living. So it took a long time. It took me years to make it happen, but I ended up working for like Jason Derulo and Tony Braxton, different people that kind of um, arena level status. And I actually just recently saw Jason Derulo at a, at a Mavericks game uh, about a few days ago. And we were, I was able to say, so like I used to be your production coordinator 10 years ago and now I was in the front row with him you know and so it was really cool so I did uh tour stuff for a while uh it was a lot of fun but definitely kind of you had to 
get your next gig <clears throat> while you were still on the road. So that was like a really unique path. And I wanted to be like a very successful tour manager. But while I was on the road, I started learning about startups because all the people I would work for would have these different meetings about, okay, are they going to invest in this startup? And I'm like, what's a startup? So I started doing more research and I realized, oh, okay, I follow the money. I was like, okay, that's why they're interested. Let me see what, let me eavesdrop as much as I can. So I just kind of listened in to them and to their managers. And that's when I learned what startups were. And so I decided I want to start my own because I've always been an entrepreneur. I want to start my own company and I want to raise money for it from venture capitalists because I've learned about what that means. So I started doing all this research so I could have conversations with investors because I was like, of course I can do this. And that's when I learned that less than 10% of all venture funding goes to women, people of color and LGBTQ founders, of which I'm all three, in a country where straight white men make up about 30% of the population. And I thought that was like in 2013. And I was like, that is so interesting that that I mean, what does that mean for me? And what does that mean for my peers? And, you know, so I went on this like journey and ultimately I decided I'm going to not try to raise money for my company. I'm going to try to raise money for a fund that invests in us. And that started my journey, my path. That's awesome. So I I think being on the road and and doing production probably brings out a sort of grit in you mm -hmm. um, or kind of probably nurtures a sort of grit in you. Um, and you really committed to your dream of helping others. What would you say was the specific drive behind that um, to be, I mean, you've named the challenges that you would face trying to go into VC funding and that kind of thing. What was the drive that that really brought you to want to pursue that dream? And how do you find the motivation to keep going when things get hard? Both of the same answer, the drive and the current motivation are the the success stories I see in other people based on the work that I do. At first, it was a thesis. I thought, we've done so much with so little. What would happen if we had more? And that was just my driving force. All the people who I just named, women across the board, people of color, LGBTQ, what would happen if we had more? And so then as over the years I've invested now in 200 plus companies and I can see without a doubt that it makes a difference, that becomes addictive. It becomes addictive to see that sort of transformation in other people and to know not only are, is that like a direct help, right? It is also, it's contagious. So other people do it and you have this ripple effect that's created and so jobs created and opportunity created and, and people getting and customers getting amazing products in a lot of cases. And, and then people saying, you know, I have success here. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to invest in other people. So seeing that through all of the ups and downs that I've gone through, that I still go through with Backstage Capital because it is such a groundbreaking fund. It is not an easy thing to, to run. It's always, go, it always goes back to, okay, but like, if we stop right now, how many people get to miss out on what we're doing? Because it makes a difference. Every single year, I was looking back on it this year, because I was thinking through COVID and through the uprising and everything. I was thinking, we somehow, no matter what, as an indie fund, still managed to invest in at least 30 companies per year. 
that's a that's a big deal. And that is not only the 30 companies that get investment because they get maybe 50,000, 100,000, 200,000, but it's also the people who watch them and believe that they can too. So you told us kind of what makes Backstage Capital special and you talked about disparities in VC funding. What do you think can be done for founders that are listening, for people who are thinking about doing pitches, all these kinds of things, what can be done to overcome those challenges and those disparities to see themselves be successful when looking for funding and things like that? Yeah, there are a couple of things. Uh, I'll go, I'll say my favorite part second, but mainly just knowing, if you know, it's kind of a bummer to know the statistics, but if you know that you have the information, you kind of have an upper hand and not to chase money for the sake of chasing money. So it's kind of intertwined with the second thing I'm going to say. Don't chase money just to chase money and say any money is good. And I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to make sure that it doesn't matter what that person says to me, how out of pocket they are, what you want to work with people, especially with investors who for years you can tolerate, for years you want to thrive with. So if, if somebody says something to you sideways in a meeting, you have to be willing to walk away from $100,000. It's not worth it. It will never be worth it. That goes hand in hand with, I don't think that everybody needs outside investing. And even if you do end up needing investing, try to wait for a little bit while you build your company's value so that when you sell, when you do take on an outside investing, you're, you're uh, selling it for less of the value valuation. So you have more equity left over more ownership left. That's what I talk about a lot in your first million is that ownership, that ownership of assets, of your finances, of IP, et cetera. You want to have as much ownership as possible. So I think going into, like when I go and I negotiate deals, I have raised nearly $30 million, but I've also generated millions of dollars in revenue for my various companies. So when I go in to have meetings and negotiate, first of all, when you negotiate, it's just like you know asking for capital. When you negotiate, you want to make sure that both people or both sides get to win. And then the other piece is you have to be willing to walk away. You have to be willing to walk away. The person who is willing to walk away without kind of begging in the moment wins. They win because no matter what happens, they're okay. So I say, stay hungry, not thirsty. Don't be thirsty in there. Be passionate, be hungry in there. I love that. Um, I listened to you do an interview. I don't know how long ago you did this interview, but you talk a lot about being underestimated and still coming out on top. Will you say a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so my first book uh, that came out in 2020 is called It's About Damn Time, How to Turn Being Underestimated into Your Greatest ass uh, Asset, Essentially. And the word underestimated is we have that trademarked in the U.S. and the U.K. under financial works because we always talk about underrepresented, which is an accurate statement. We're underrepresented in a lot of rooms and a lot of rooms in tech and investing. We talk about minority is another word that's thrown around, the minority founders. I don't like those words. They're accurate to a point, but I don't like them. I think when you add underestimated, and this is a, a, a phrase that we've been saying for, for years now, it changes the connotation. It, it gives you a little bit of ma imagination. It says, okay, that means that somebody else is missing out on something, not seeing something. 
That means too, that I, the person who's underestimated, have so far to go that I get inspired by that. And so it's just, I, I, I pay attention to words. Words are really important to me. And um, that type of mentality, I think is important because so much of what I've seen from sleeping on the floor of the San Francisco airport, and that was like lived there, to working with millions, personally becoming a millionaire, uh, having a $6 million investment from Mark Cuban, so working with billionaires on a joint venture. The number one thing that I've noticed from people that kind of blocks them from changing their circumstances is their mindset. Either they don't believe that they're allowed or that it could possibly be, be them who becomes a millionaire or who can get out of their current circumstances, or their mindset is there's something else up with it. And this is why I called the book Your First Million, because I believe that 99.9% .9 of the people reading the book or listening to this right now can be millionaires or can make their first million. I just, and that's why I say first million. Everything I say is, is very precise. And so in the book, the feedback that I'm getting already is like from all walks of life. It's like, oh, you, you, you taught me I could, this is mine too. This belongs to me too. And then if you have that mental shift and you understand why, and I go through logically why, then the rest of the book that tells you how, that part is like, oh, that's gravy. It's like, oh, okay, <laughs> let's go. But if you don't believe you can, you can't really apply stuff, step-by-step -step guide that I have. You can't apply it. I love that. I think a, a lot of, uh, you've mentioned this, but I think a big part of believing it is, is just representation and seeing other people who look like you, who are like you, achieve that as well. So I really appreciate that message. Just a gentle pivot. What advice would you give someone considering making a career shift similar to what you did? Oh, so I've had many career shifts. Um, first of all, I think that you should allow yourself to. I think I just spoke with uh, a woman named Valerie Workman, who used to be the head of people at Tesla. She's a black woman and she was there for four years. And then she now she's at another company and she was at one before that, a big company. And she said that people she she took the company from 50,000 people to 100,000 people. She was a head of people there. She said that even with that background, people thought of her as flaky. And what she was saying was, because she has a new book out, and she what she was saying, like, is that actually helps me, help me build upon different things. Having these different experiences helped me build the career that I wanted. So when I, when some people are like pivoting, I'm talking to a friend about it right now, they're kind of concerned about what someone else is going to think, what other people are going to think of them. And I, I just can't relate to that. I don't even know where I would begin if I worried about what people thought about my career choice. If you didn't give birth to me and you don't pay my rent, why does it matter what you think? <laughs> and even then it's a conversation, right? So, to me, so if you're thinking of pivoting, ask yourself why. Are you running from hurt, running from pain? Are you running towards something better? As long as you feel it's the right thing to do or you want something that's more fulfilling, you want something that um, you feel like you're better at or you want to challenge or any of these myriad of reasons, once you're good with yourself, like it's important to take a reflection and understand why you're doing anything, understanding your intention, because then you can set your sights on things and go towards it. But once you're good with the idea and the decision, don't let other people's opinions stop you. 
don't let them. You have a family most likely, and you're you got to think about like if you have children, you have to think about what's best for them. You have to think about what's best for your household, but you don't have to think about what Bebe says on Instagram. Bebe has her own problems. I love that. Bebe has her own problems for sure. <laughs> Plus one. Plus one. <laughs> um. I've, I've asked you like a lot of like advice questions, guidance questions. Our audience at Women Who Code is going to be entry to executive level women, non-binary people in tech. And so what pro tip would you give this community, the Women Who Code community? When it comes to what in particular? To career navigation, to living into their dreams, even though they are going to be the underestimated and the probably the only one in the room, that kind yeah. of thing. Oh yeah. There have been so many times where I've met people who were the only one in the room. And I'll say what I said to one woman who said it on camera uh, at, at, a, at a conference and she's a black woman. And she was like, she says, I can't remember what she said she was doing, but she was studying like molecular da 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 something way over my head. And the room applauded her when she said it, but she was very intent on saying, I'm oftentimes the only black woman in the room. Or the only black person in the room, or the only woman in the room. And I said to her, You heard how this audience applauded you when you even said what you're doing, how proud this room is for you. So when you're in those rooms alone, quote unquote, take us with you. Take us with you mentally because so many people are rooting for you. And then I said, You are rare in the room, and a rare jewel gets a lot of attention. So when you graduate, she was in school. When you graduate, you'll be so rare that you'll get a lot of attention. You'll be someone who is sought after. And so they can think of, you can pivot in your mind the circumstances. That's what I do. I just repurpose circumstances. Things that are negative, I have to, and it's a little bit of like a pie in the sky, but sometimes you have to do that for yourself. Another thing I say is, I think, I think it's like loosening the pickle jar. I would try to open a, a jar of pickles, <laughs> which now I've lost pickles. Um, you loosen the pickle jar for somebody else. So a lot of times we are in rooms where we're asking for things or that are that we deserve, but we're not getting them. If we had the courage even to ask, we're not getting them. And it can feel very defeating to walk away from that and not get that. But when I started thinking about what if I loosened the pickle jar for the next woman? What if I made it slightly easier for the next woman in my same circumstances, but the same people or some other circumstance by my, by my representation, by something I did to shake things up? That is enough. That's incredible. That's enough. So that's another piece that you can take with you. So take it with you for you. Yes, walk into those rooms try to shake those rooms up. And then even if you don't get your way, I I guarantee you in some way, you, you shifted the universe in some way. Thank you. That's awesome. My last question for you, for our audience, they, they have to go get about damn time, but you're releasing your first million. And so you've mentioned it a couple of times, but please tell us about your first million and then tell, tell us how people can connect with you, reach you across, mm -hmm email, LinkedIn, however. Yeah, so I wrote It's About Damn Time. It came out in 2020 in the, the heart of things going on in the world and uh, really helped inspire a lot of people. And so 
I wanted to have, that was a much of a memoir, inspir inspirational. And then I wanted to say, I wanted to put something out in the world that was kind of a guidebook for entrepreneurs or those who are aspiring to be. And I don't think you have to have a company to be an entrepreneur. I, can, I think you can be a, a, an entrepreneur within a company. You're the entrepreneur of your career, um, the CEO of your life. And so I wanted to give this guide of what, like my thesis used to be, and it still is, we've done so much with so little as underestimated people. What would happen if we had more? And that's why I built Backstage Capital. And that's played out. You can see that it was right. And now my thesis is, and this remains that one, but in addition to that, it is that, well, it's just a hope. I want to see a thousand new millionaires in the in the country that represent the demographics of the country, at, at the very least represent them, if not um, outside, outsized. And I want to help create and, and, and cultivate and catalyze that group of people. And so I have Your First Million, the podcast that I've had for four and a half years. That's an audio podcast and a video now of this year, as of the last few months on YouTube. That's Your First Million. This book is an extension of that. So we talk about the things I've learned in those hundreds of interviews with millionaires and billionaires. And then also introduces this idea of or really puts a fine line on this idea of what if there were for every one billionaire, for the next billionaire, what if there was a thousand millionaires like us? What would that do? What kind of power, control, influence, quality of life could we affect? And so the book and then the event that happens April 9th through the 12th in Los Angeles, Your First Million Live, at, uh, it's at Your First Million Live, Your First Million dot live is the website. All of these tie together and the, the event is where we'll have the convening. The book is where I lay out the thesis, tell you why I think it's important for us to have that to begin with, tell you how to make your first million, and then we meet at your first million life. And you asked me um, how people can keep up with me. If you, I spend a lot of time on Instagram at Arlen was here, A-R-L-A-N was here. I'm also on LinkedIn. And you can go to yourfirstmillion.live to grab the um, pass to Your First Million Live. And Your First Million, the book, you can order right now. Thank you, Arlen. Thank you so much for your time. Um, and thank you to everyone tuning in to the Women Who Code podcast. Um, this has been great. Thank you for listening to the Women Who Code podcast. To find out more about our mission and the work we do across the tech industry, visit our website, womenwhocode.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Women Who Code. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of hours of free educational videos. Just go to youtube.com backslash women who code. Thanks again for listening. And remember to subscribe, rate, and comment.